This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The medieval period spans approximately a thousand years, and so it's really saying something to say that this is someone who is the most important and influential theologian of that entire period. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host James Dalzell, and today both of us are joined by David Van Drunen, who is the Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. He's done a number of very interesting things, written a number of very interesting things, but we're going to talk with him today about a book he co-edited called Aquinas Among the Protestants. It's a bit of a scholarly book, but I think there are some things there that are important for all of us to think about. So, David, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You begin this book by talking about the various ways that Aquinas has been received, both positively and negatively, by Protestants. But I wanted to take a step back from that and ask you, who was Thomas Aquinas? Why does he matter in the overall sweep of Christian theology? Why should we even think about him, consider him at all? Well, uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, lived in the 13th century, so that's the, the 1200s, and uh, he was a native of Italy, and he, he studied and taught at various places in, in Europe. He spent a lot of his time actually in Paris. And I guess just to uh, get right to the point of the question is Aquinas really emerged as uh, the most famous and most enduringly important of the medieval theologians. And, you know, the, the medieval period spans, you know, approximately a thousand years. And so it's really saying something to say that <laughs> this is someone uh, who is the most important and really the most influential theologian of that entire period. Now, it was not immediately evident when he was alive or, or even in the immediate years after his life that he would actually emerge as this preeminent figure uh, from that era. But as the, the years and the centuries went on, uh, he uh, became increasingly recognized as this kind of monumental figure. And He's especially been uh, honored and revered among Roman Catholics, and really that is is sort of the uh, the reason why a book like this uh, that I co-edited has come about, and why it's a kind of a controversial subject. What do we, who are Protestants, what do we do with someone uh, who is a medieval theologian who is so honored by by Roman Catholic theologians? And you discuss that a little bit at the beginning. You you lead with this very uh, provocative, as Luther it tends to be, provocative quote from Martin Luther, calling Thomas Aquinas the source and foundation of all heresy, error, and obliteration of the gospel, very subtly put by uh, Martin Luther. But I, I wonder if you could just outline broadly why he was reacted to so strongly. What, what were the points of disagreement for Luther? Why? Apart from the fact that he he would bear the label of Roman Catholic and he's he's well respected in the Roman Catholic tradition, why has he been so rejected by uh, by many Protestants? Well, I think part of the answer is for someone like Martin Luther, who, of course, you know, as you were 
noting, uh, he wasn't given to often to a lot of subtlety. He, he saw things in a lot of black and white ways. And one of the things that uh, a person notes as he reads Thomas Aquinas is that he does on a lot of things, he will appeal to Aristotle, uh, as he often calls him the philosopher. Uh, and it, it's obvious that Aristotle bears a lot of weight for him uh, on philosophical issues. And one of the things that's, that's certainly the case with Luther as he looked at uh, the Roman Catholic Church of his day is that he thought it was, it was too beholden to philosophy, to Aristotle, to the sort of human ways of trying to know and trying to get to God. And Luther wanted to oppose to that or contrast to that, uh, a biblical gospel-centered way, uh, a, a theology of the cross, uh, knowing God in his humility, knowing God as he has revealed himself to us in his word. And I think for, for someone like Luther, Aquinas sort of stood for that uh, kind of an Aristotelian philosophical corruption of the church. And I think it's, it's certainly true that that, that image of Aquinas has continued to have reverberation through the centuries, and it's still something that still has a hold uh, in a lot of Protestant circles today. And so I do think that that is one of the issues that Protestants who are reading Aquinas uh, have to deal with. At the same time, I think it's also important to remember that there's there are a lot of caricatures of Thomas and his kind of alleged Aristotelianism is not quite as simple as one might think from reading certain quotes from people like Luther. David, even among uh, the first generation reformers, uh, it might be easy to think, well, if Luther said it, that settles it. That's the reformational approach and that there was some kind of consensus in the 16th or even 17th centuries about the value or lack thereof of Aquinas. And yet a number of the articles in this book, uh, the contributors make the argument and I, I think make the case based in historical research that that definitely isn't the case, that the reception of Aquinas among the early Protestants is in fact a, a mixed record. Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the things that we really wanted to bring out in this book. Uh, yeah, if you look at some of the really uh, important early Reformed theologians uh, like Jerome Sankey, we have a we have a chapter on him uh, uh, in the book. Peter Martyr, Vermeule, these were uh, these were men who were actually trained in Thomistic schools and knew uh, something. Uh, I shouldn't say something; they knew a lot about Thomas's thought. And uh, I mean, these were staunch Reformed theologians who, uh, who saw uh, a lot of value in, in Thomas and, and his work. They certainly were Thomas in some sort of uh, broad, absolute sense, but they recognized that there was a lot of value there. And then you, you think about someone like Franciscus Junius, who's a very important Reformed theologian of the later 16th century, who also utilized Thomas in some pretty important ways, and you continue to see that in uh, 17th century reform thought. So, you know, one of the things that, that, that we were trying to do in this book is, is to show not that Thomas was some kind of early Protestant hero or a early Protestant villain, but that there was 
mixed opinion about him. I mean, there were there were different opinions among different theologians, and also theologians themselves recognized that there were areas of value in Thomas's thought, but they all recognized uh, that there were there were plenty of areas of Thomas's thought that definitely needed a reformation. Uh, and so, I think you know, part of our book is really to kind of bring more of this information, more of this to light so that we can have a more nuanced and actually in a a more accurate uh, idea of kind of the fate of Thomas in, uh, in Protestant thought. With regard to, and I think we can, we could automatically see where there's a universal reformational rejection of perhaps aspects of Thomas's sacramentology. Um, Yeah. No, no Protestant is defending his view of transubstantiation. Um, and then there are other areas where there is really apparent, broad agreement with Thomas. I think in my my own area of study on the doctrine of God, theology proper, there's right. just a, a vast and deep continuity, it would seem. Uh, and yet there are other areas as well, perhaps ones we don't tend to immediately think of where reformational and reformed theologians in particular uh, saw value. What would some of those? What would I mean? Is in other words, is it simply a matter of, well, yeah. we reject everything except you know he got the doctrine of God right, and we're thankful for that. Is there is there more continuity than that? Yes, yeah, there there certainly is, and you know one area that is really interesting to think about, and it, it's an area that gets a lot of attention by people who are studying Thomas is issues of natural theology and natural law. Hmm. Uh, there is sort of this sense among a whole lot of Protestants in the 20th century that Thomas's view of these subjects was wrong. It was uh, sort of this admitting an Aristotelian or Greek philosophy uh, that was in some way corrupting Christian theology. But it's really interesting on, on, on the whole subject of natural theology, and I don't think Thomas gets everything right about, about the concept of natural theology, but his, his greatest work, the, the Summa Theologia, uh, it, it actually begins. The, the very first question that he addresses in this big work uh, is whether, besides philosophy, that any further doctrine is required. And he goes hmm. on to explain why natural theology uh, is not sufficient, why we need scripture, why we need uh, a kind of a supernatural theology. And I think that's, when you dig down to what he's actually doing in those opening sections of the Summa Theologiae, uh, there's, there's a great deal of continuity with what so many uh, Protestants, uh, particularly Reformed theologians were doing in the 16th and 17th century. And then Similarly, with the idea of natural law, uh, again, I would not, uh, I would not agree with everything Thomas does with the subject of natural law. But the early Protestants were unanimous that there is a natural law. There, there is a law that God makes known uh, in this creation order that human beings are able to understand, even though they sinfully corrupt it. Right. Uh, and you look at a lot of the early Reformed theologians are, are picking up very closely the ideas and even sometimes the very language that Thomas was using. So I think it's worth thinking about uh, some basic ideas about how we do theology 
uh, how we see uh, the importance of Scripture, even while recognizing that God does reveal himself uh, in this broader world. And as we think about ethics, not just as pure, abstract commands coming from Scripture, but as grounded in the world that God has made, uh, I think Thomas right. has, uh, it, he doesn't get everything right, but there's a lot of, a lot of good material for reflection and it's very clear that uh, so many early Protestant theologians were wrestling with Thomas and thought that they could learn a lot from him in these areas. So let me maybe let me springboard from that. That's that's sort of our our 16th and 17th century forebearers are are taking him uh, as an important and a weighty voice. Um, what about today? Is there still a continuing viability to say, as you were mentioning, Thomas's theological method, how to situate uh, things known through nature vis-a-vis -vis those things only known through Scripture? In other words, does is Thomas a sort of a curiosity and a relic, and is this study uh, simply one of trying to remind ourselves of what our tradition did a few hundred years ago, or is there is there a place where there's a sort of um, fresh viability to the study and even a judicious incorporation of some of Thomas's thought in our current articulation and statement of the faith, whether it be doctrine of God or ethics or um, even method? I think there is, and there are, there are several things coming to my mind as you ask that question, but let me at least begin here. We live in this whatever you want to call it, a postmodern world in which there's this, uh, there's a sense that there, there is no real nature. There, there is no real meaning in, in nature. The world is one that's been in constant evolutionary flux. Whatever meaning that I want to have in my life is something that I sort of have to create or I just embrace a kind of a narrative that works for me or people who identify in the same way that I do. That's, that's the kind of world that we live in right now. And I think when we, when we as Christians are, are trying to think about, you know, how do we, how do we, we respond to that? How do, we, how do we speak into this kind of world? How do we explain Christianity in this sort of context? It's really important for us uh, to be able to say, no, uh, this world is not a meaningless world, that this natural world around us is not one of meaningless evolutionary flux, that actually this world uh, has meaning. Uh, God has made it in a certain way, and we as human beings uh, have been made in order to understand this world. This world is intelligible uh, by us. Of course, we are sinful creatures who are constantly corrupting this knowledge that we have, and yet I think it's a really important part of our apologetic, of our confronting the world with the gospel to say, no, this world is, is meaningful. Uh, and that's important for our proclamation of the gospel because the gospel only means something, uh, the, the gospel itself only means something if there's a real problem. And, right. if, and, uh, and if there is actually a rebellion of this world against God and I think by defending the meaningfulness of this world and the intelligibility of this world, we are actually bolstering our ability to proclaim the gospel in a, in a coherent way. And I think that is an area in which the legacy of Thomas is something 
again, not that we're just going to embrace uncritically, but something that we want to take seriously and uh, to, to recognize that uh, Thomas was, in his defense of a natural knowledge of God, uh, a natural knowledge of, of God's law, that this is a perennial need of the church uh, to, to def- defend and proclaim. And the church for almost almost 800 years now has been doing this in conversation with the work of Thomas Aquinas, who thought about these things deeply. So I think that's one area in, in which our engagement with Thomas now is not just something of antiquarian interest, but has it has some real relevance for the present context in which we live. I would agree. I think if you want a coherent, broad view of the natural world that um, that just drops like a, a bomb on materialism and anti-essentialism, then Thomas's firm belief in substances and essences and uh, a kind of a, a structure of being then that is something so much more than just uh, matter in motion, so to speak. It offers not just a, a protest, but it af- actually offers a very subtle and broad body of of thought that could stand in contradiction to that sort of perennial materialism of today. Right. I think another important aspect of of our book and of the whole idea of a kind of a re-investigation of Thomas, I think it is, uh, it's valuable in defending the idea of the Catholicity of Reformation Christianity, mm. in that, uh, you know, we face today a lot of, a lot of conservative Protestants who are fascinated by Rome, and we all know evangelicals and Reformed people who have converted to Rome, and one of the things that was important for the early Protestants was to defend the idea that the Reformation was not a brand new kind of Christianity uh, or, or a, a brand new religion. Uh, it, was, it was a reform. Uh, it was a reformation of a Christianity and of a church and of a theology that had already existed 1,500 years. Right. And I think there's a danger that we have in a lot of Protestant circles that we, we, we sort of act as though theology started in the 16th century, or maybe we'll go back and read Augustine or a few other patristic theologians and sort of act as if a thousand, a thousand years, years didn't years, intervene. There, were, there was nothing but corruption <laughs> right. um, in the church. And I think by having some interest in the medieval church, the medieval development of theology, it's a way to show that we actually believe what Christ said in Matthew 16, that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, and that there was actually this medieval era is actually part of our history, uh, part of our history as, as Protestants. And I think by, by studying Thomas, we're trying to live out our conviction that Reformation Christianity is Catholic Christianity right. with, a, with a small c. David, thanks so much for your work on this. And also, we really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So, James, when we saw that this book was going to be published, um, I'm sure it was you. I don't remember, but I'm I'm sure you were the one who said, we need to look at this and we need to interview David Van Drunen because you've been so helped in your study of Aquinas 
uh, as have I, but, but certainly you take the lead in that. So give our listeners the answer that you would give to the question that we asked David. We asked him, why does Thomas matter today? What does he have to offer constructively? That's the way you put it to him. How would you answer that question? Yeah, that uh, I thought his answer was a good one, and that, and I hope listeners understood what he was getting at. That Thomas actually pr- presents a world that is meaningful in the yes. sense that there is a deep and rich, intelligible structure to the world that is that is knowable to the natural mind. I grant that that mind suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, but that doesn't make that truth disappear. And Thomas takes great pains to articulate and elaborate that and then situate a true view of the natural world with lots of arguments for why he holds that view vis-a-vis scripture. And of course, as he would argue that since there is a single author of nature and scripture, that we should not expect uh, philosophy to contradict theology. And in fact, that as Thomas would say, if our philosophy contradicts our theology, then it's not true philosophy. That being said, if there is such a thing as true philosophy, and if it really can be put into the service of the Christian faith, if that is in fact a, a viable undertaking, then Thomas Aquinas is certainly one of the most, if not the most significant practitioner of Christian attempts at actually doing that. Again, as as Dr. Ben Drunen said, not, not that we appropriate him blindly or uncritically, and maybe we could move to that thought as well. Yeah. With regard to retrieval yeah, efforts. Yeah, currently. no, that's where I wanted to go next because I think that's an important point. We can get caught up, particularly in our world, we can get caught up in retrieval as an exercise in nostalgia or as an exercise in kind of me tooism. We've got these right. intelligent guys in the past as well. And that's not really what this is about. That's not what you're describing. And the way you worded even your question to David was you know, what does he have to offer to us today? Um, certainly right. if you if you're a a tenured professor, you can you can write something that's of mere historical interest. But you would say, and I would agree, that this goes beyond mere historical interest and nostalgia. Yeah, and I and this isn't a commentary on the essays collected in this volume uh, necessarily, but maybe a maybe a caution about the current resourcement or retrieval effort among evangelicals. Uh, Richard Muller uh, once spoke about the Catholicizing tendency of. Protestant scholasticism, and he meant that in a good way, that we were, we were in a certain sense appropriating medieval and patristic arguments to beef up the intelligibility and the credibility of our own claims as Protestants. And I think that's a, that's a valuable undertaking that shouldn't have ended with the 17th century, uh, and I'm thankful for Muller and others who've sort of rebooted that today. But together with that, there might be the tendency to, in a certain sense, think, I need to give myself some historic credibility. I need to, and he's right, that we need to prove the small c Catholic credentials of our own evangelicalism. And so it almost, it can become, again, not a commentary on the essays in this book, but it can become a sort of um, reappropriation free-for-all, where if it's old and if it wasn't condemned by an ecumenical council of the church, it's fair game. Right. Uh, and I will say for, for my own journey, and I would imagine for Dr. Van Drunen and others as well, um, the reason I was drawn to Thomas was not because he was a man of stature or importance or was regarded as orthodox by pre-Reformational standards, um, though that certainly warrants some attention. What drew me to him and has continued to draw me to him is, is in fact, the force of argument. It's not just that he takes right positions uh 
a lot of the time. Uh, it's that he makes very good and careful uh, and stout arguments for those positions so that in the end, like with anyone, whether it's Augustine or the Cappadocians or Thomas Aquinas or Bonaventure, if we're going to retrieve any of this pre-Reformational tradition, it needs to be because we're convinced theologically and or philosophically in the second place of the truthfulness of the claims that they're making because only it's only the truthfulness of these men that actually makes their their value to us enduring and worth our effort. And I would say for Thomas, I wouldn't want to appropriate Thomas out of some kind of attempt to give myself some medieval credentials, but rather to appropriate Thomas in so much as he makes good and persuasive arguments that that can be made today. That's well put, and we want to commend this book to to our listeners, although we would add that this is a scholarly work. This is not an introduction to Thomas. Right. It's 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 a it's a mixed bag because it is an edited volume and it's and and it's a scholarly edited volume. So But it, there's nothing like it. That, no, well, that's that. true. That's true. I know it 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 is definitely uh, it stands on its own, but um but in any case it's called Aquinas Among the Protestants. It's edited by Manfred Svensson and David Van Drunen. And if you would like to have the opportunity to win a copy of it, um, you can do that by going to placefortruth.org, clicking on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a place to enter to win. We want to thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. One of the things we try to do is to introduce you to books and, and ideas that perhaps might be slightly unfamiliar to some of you. And so if you know anyone else who you think would be helped by this, please pass along the word. Uh, you can access this podcast on placefortruth.org or on many of the places where you can normally download other podcasts. So thank you for listening. For those of you who are, have been able to help us by way of donating, thank you for that. And thanks, as always, to all our listeners for joining us for Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>